0: Physics world. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. This week's episode has a geophysics theme, with a good dash of sound and music thrown in. Coming up, we'll be listening to music that's inspired by the physics of how ocean waves smash against the boulder beaches of the west coast of Ireland. But first, let's travel north to the Arctic, where the extreme climate can make it very difficult to do geophysics research, as Physics World's Margaret Harris finds out in this conversation with a geophysicist who uses optical fiber to listen to the noises associated with icequakes and other dynamics of the frozen sea.
1: There's a lot going on under the frozen surface of the Arctic Ocean, and we don't know all that much about it. It's a very harsh environment, both for people and also for the scientific instruments that record data up there. And someone who knows a lot about this harsh environment, and specifically about the north slope of Alaska, is Rob Abbott. Rob is a geophysicist at Sandia National Laboratory, which is in New Mexico in the U.S. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Oh, thank you very much. Uh, Pleasure to be here.
1: And so what were you doing there? What was, the, what was your project you were working on?
2: So we were trying a, a technique uh, under sea ice for the first time called distributed acoustic sensing. With distributed acoustic sensing, you, use, you can use a standard uh, fiber optic telecom cable. On one end of the cable, you can use what's called an interrogator to rapidly pulse a laser down this uh, fiber. And you have some amount of backscatter of your laser that you've injected into this, into this cable. And, and there's Rayleigh, Rayleigh scattering, Briouan scattering, Raman scattering, et cetera, coming back towards you. But for this technology, we're interested in Rayleigh scattering, which, well, uh, doesn't change the wavelength of the light coming back to you. It's just, it's, and it's scattered off of natural imperfections, natural changes in density in the glass that changes the refractive index. And so you, you pulse down the laser, you have a time of flight that you get back towards your interrogator and maybe phase shift and distort it a little bit. And then you send out another pulse and you compare the two pulses from successive laser pulses. And if the fiber has strained or changed length, either got shorter or got longer, there's a phase change in those two pulses. And so you measure that phase change in radians and using the optical properties of glass, you know... You can convert that to like a nanometer per second strain rate that happened in between those two pulses. So what you have in, in essence is a, in our case, 40 kilometer long seismometer that measures vibrations in the, in the earth because we um, we're in a trench. Uh, the, the fiber in this area of the world has to be trenched because you're worried about icebergs uh, grounding and being plucked up and the cable being destroyed, et cetera. So it's, uh, we're in about a four meter deep tr- uh, trench. And so, when a seismic wave passes, it causes the fiber that's coupled to the ground to change lengths. And so, we have this very long seismometer. And what's nice about it is, you know, it's very, very difficult to get an ocean bottom seismometer or hydrophones up in that harsh environment. It's just the transportation is terrible. It's uh, very dangerous. You know, it could be weather uh, issues, et cetera. Instead of, you know, having a few ocean bottom seismometers for a little bit of time, we actually uh, have 20,000 channels of seismic data in an area that has virtually none. So many orders of magnitude, more data coming in than than previously.
1: You're basically listening for what's going on under the ice. Right.
2: So in this case, yes, we're looking at what's going on under the ice. Um, We do have data collects scheduled for uh, transition periods where ice is melting and ice is forming, as well as when there is no ice. So we're actually looking kind of like the rhythm of the climate up there, basically, and seeing what uh, we could see in terms of ice dynamics we hope to get a, a robust measurement of sea ice thickness, for instance, which is kind of a difficult measurement to do up there. And, uh, and a lot of times it's done from, you know, satellites and things like that with resolution that maybe is not as good as we would like. We're looking at the ice dynamics, um, the timing and distribution of ice quakes, for instance. We see um, flexural gravity waves in the ice. So if you have a long, you know, it's very flat up there. There's no obviously no, no topography or anything like that. So when you have a long reach wind that just kind of relentlessly pushes on the ice, that'll actually find, cause the ice to kind of mound up and then gravity will take that back down. And so you have this really long period, at least in certain seismic terms, long period, like 40 seconds and greater wave that goes to the ice as it's kind of like warping and flexing. And so we see that in the data and that's you know, one of the ways we want to get ice thickness. But we also see ocean dynamics as well. So underneath the The ice does not reach all the way to the seafloor where we are, so we see the effect of currents in the ocean as well under the ice. And that, obviously, you you would imagine is a very hard measurement to take. And since this is such a data-started region, this is like gold for climate modelers and things that they can use to uh, have ocean circulation models and things like that.
1: And how did you actually, you mentioned that this, this network is, is in a trench. How did you install it? I mean, how do you even go about working in February in the Arctic? I'm guessing it was pretty dark there at the time, wasn't it?
2: So it was, yeah, it was dark. The sun wasn't up for very long during the day, and it wasn't very high above the horizon when it was up. But I was a bit surprised how light it was. And part of that was because everything's just white. It's covered in snow. So you get a lot of reflected light. And we unfortunately had a lot of uh, low clouds, kind of like in, in what they called ice fog. Uh, it was minus 45 degrees, I guess, for, minus 45 degrees Fahrenheit, but actually around minus 40 is where centigrade and crosses. It's about the same. And that was before windshield. So it actually got up down to negative 77 Fahrenheit uh, when we were there. But the fact that we had this low clouds and... Uh, bright surface to, re, to reflect off of. Uh, it stayed bright for longer than I thought it would. Unfortunately, that didn't include the times we were driving to and from the field area. And so you have this blowing snow and ice fog, and you're not really familiar with the road network up there. So it was, it was an interesting It was an interesting drive. It took about two hours each way. The closest uh, town, so to speak, even though it's not a real town, it's more of a, a man camp for the oil industry. And is Dead Horse, Alaska. And our field area where we are taking our measurements is about 50 kilometers or so to the west of that at a place called Alictoc Point. It's about 70 degrees north latitude, and it's the most northern spot in the North America that you can drive to.
1: And how long did it take you to get there? How did you get there, actually?
2: Oh, uh, it takes about two days. Uh, like you said, I'm in Albuquerque, um, in New Mexico. And so we, we, uh, travel up to Anchorage and then stay the night and then take a really early flight from Anchorage to Dead Horse. We stay in Dead Horse um, for the experiment. There is a place, another man camp that is at electric point, but because of COVID, um, they do not want outside visitors there. So a little bit about Dead Horse, it's a it's kind of operated by a consortium of oil companies. Um, there's no hotels. Per se, there's no restaurants, there's no stores, no anything like that. But these these separate camps that might be run by, you know, BP or Shell or wherever. And the industry person that's the industry group that's out at the Eletok doesn't want outsiders to come in and infect everybody with COVID and cause a big uh, a big uh, reduction in capability. So we had to stay in dead horse and drive out uh, every day. So the the clothes you wear are actually you know really. I mean, if you try if you buy true Arctic gear. You're pretty good. Right? You don't really feel it cold, but your eyeballs are not protected if, if you want to see anyway. And so if you blink any, any more than slightly longer than normal, your eyelashes freeze together and you have, to break, you have to break the ice out of your eyelashes so you can open your eyes. And so when I went, I went back in after maybe we are only about 20 minutes or whatever, and I went back into the cable landing facility and I'm, I was complaining of headache. Oh, that's brain freeze. Just like you have ice cream, you know, and you, the roof of your mouth is really close to your brain. Your eyes are really close to your brain too. So you're the only place that's really cold might be your eyes, and that just kind of leaks into your brain and causes a headache, like brain freeze. That's oh, pretty crazy.
1: Okay, so you've kind of convinced me that it's not the sort of place you want to have humans doing observations really regularly. Mm-hmm. Let alone sort of doing twenty thousand of them. Yeah. So what What is it that makes this this technology, which I think was developed for the oil and gas industry, so it's obviously probably really quite familiar with some of the people who are already up there. What makes this technology really well, well suited for it?
2: Well, it certainly is. Uh, they're early adopters for sure. Um, and they use it a lot for like micro seismic monitoring, monitoring down in wells, et cetera. And well, one of what my things is suitable is like I said, is the data multiplicity. Um, so instead of having a really expensive, uh, you know, you could have eight levels of geophones or seismometers down a hole. You can increase that by orders of magnitude, and having you know one meter spacing uh, strain sensors, and so that really helps when you're trying to locate seismic events. Another thing that's um, kind of underappreciated is if I were to take an ocean bottom seismometer campaign up there, I might put out a really big one, might be like 12 sensors, and we have 20,000. And you want to do the same experiment the next year to see year over year if there's been any change in the environment you'll never get those seismometers back in the same location that you actually installed them the first time. Just because, um, you know, when you, when you you plant them, even if you planted them in the exact same spot, the coupling to the earth might've changed. And so you'd have that contaminating your data. The nice thing about this fiber is it's going to be in the same spot, you know, for decades. And, you know, the glass is going to last longer than that. I mean, it's, it's only the, maybe the, over decades, the deterioration of the armor around the fiber, or something like that might affect it, but that's not even known at this point. I should mention that, you know, that we as at Sandia did not install this fiber. This is actually an active telecommunications fiber that's taking Internet to this north slope. It's from a company called Quintillion, and they plan this is phase one. It goes kind of around Alaska, from where we are, Licktock down to Nome right now. But the plan is to go through the Arctic, um, all the way from London to Tokyo.
0: Eventually, for this,
1: so how did you get involved in this this technology, the the um distributed sensing technology in the first place? I mean, because you you said the fiber was put in by someone else, but you had to yeah. obviously go up and, and get the the sensors out there yourself.
2: So um I am involved involved in a in a series of a, a experiments in Nevada at the Nevada National Security Site, which is location of where the u s. did its continental nuclear testing. And we're, and we're doing some explosion, chemical explosion tests to, for nuclear nonproliferation purposes so that we can discriminate earthquakes from explosions. And so as a kind of an add-on experiment, not really expecting to get great data, I proposed using distributed acoustic sensing, uh, to monitor explosions. And it worked, you know, beyond our expectations. And so, you know, at this point, I'm, I have a new hammer and I'm looking for nails to, to that are sticking up. And I had done some previous work in Alaska um, using ambient noise on traditional seismometers to uh, listen to permafrost melting, basically, um, in, the, in the Fairbanks region. And so I'd been out to Alaska. I loved it. And um, I know that, you know, just, you know, the, first, the very first uses of DAS on the seafloor had just come out in late in the yeah, year 2019. And I was reading about it. And I'm like, I bet you, you know, I wonder if there's any networks up in Alaska that I could use to do this. And, nobody's ever tried it under sea ice yet. And so I wrote a proposal in 2020 and that's basically how I, how I got up there.
1: You mentioned listening to permafrost melt. What's, what's the sound like when permafrost melts? <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, so what the idea is, you know, you have this permafrost and you have this, what's called the active layer above that. The active layer basically turns to mush down to a certain depth every year and then refreezes back to the surface. And so, you know, you go from something that has a shear wave velocity, you know, seismic shear wave velocity in the, you know, over in the thousands of meters per second, down to something that's even got like 50 meters per second. So you have this huge difference in change in in velocity. And so if you put out a small network and you just listen to ambient noise and using a a technique called uh, ambient noise tomography or cross correlation, we look for changes in the waveforms through the season. And at various frequencies, so high frequencies would be very affected by this active layer because that's the high frequencies travel through the through the you know very superficial layers, whereas low frequencies um, travel deeper. And so, looking at these the changes in velocity versus frequency, and try to do an inversion to determine how how the uh, how deep that layer goes every year. The the most common technology to measure active layer thickness is literally a sharp stick. You just mm-hmm. go out and you poke it down, and you say, okay, it went down to. 25 centimeters or a meter or whatever. And again, it's a, it, you know, it's a kind of common theme, you know, if in Alaska, there's no roads and all this sort of stuff. You have to take a helicopter out there. It's expensive. It's, uh, you know, it can be dangerous, uh, et cetera. So but if you can have a, a small network taking data 24 seven, that's in the same spot every year, then it might be a better way to, to uh, hit that parameter.
1: And besides from permafrost melting, I guess the, the data you run, you recently finished was the first of several, but you're already starting to sort of analyze the preliminary data. What are mm-hmm. some of the things you've found so far?
2: So we, we definitely see um, ice quakes for sure. So it's it's and it's and interesting that, you know, we're not in the ice. So the ice is, you know, at the surface, so there's a layer of water and then there's a layer of soil or uh, seafloor and then then there's our cable. So we have, we're going from, you know, an ice is a solid where you might P waves and S waves, et cetera. And there's some interesting physics going on because the sea ice thickness is kind of around the same wavelength as your actual seismic waves. So you can't really use ray, you know, classical ray theory to uh, understand these data. You have like these, you know, kind of boutique waves, at least for me, because I'm not uh, an expert in seismology, like, you know, lamb waves and prairie waves and these, these kind of strange waves. But those are coupled to the ocean and that travels through the ocean, it gets kind of all you know, all the shear waves get kind of subtracted out of the data because uh fluids can't handle shear waves or can't propagate shear waves. And then it's coupled to the ground and coupled to the fiber. So the icequakes are interesting and they look, you know, very kind of simple, like there's kind of just chevrons in the data. Um, whereas you know, we do see some micro seismic events and earthquakes as well. And where you can you can really tell the difference between an ice quake and an earthquake because you see uh different waves that don't exist in water, like chilty waves and, and S waves and things like that. So we see those two things. Uh, we do see uh, flexural gravity waves, like I was saying in the ice, where you know, the ice is kind of wobbling at a very long period, 40 seconds or, or more at a very slow velocity um, caused by winds and uh, things like that. We haven't located the earthquakes by any means at all. We've only looked about 10% of the data and I'll get to that in a second. Uh, but there seem to be areas of concentration where there's earthquakes uh, or ice quakes where there's shore fast ice, where the ice is kind of stuck the the shore north slope. And then there's free ice and where that intersection is. And you can imagine, you know, when there's a tide, you know, tide goes in, tide goes out. You have wind there. It's It's a very, it's an area of great friction. And so we see a lot of activity in that area. So tracking where that, Shore-fast versus sea-fast ice might be a climate signal as well that migrates in closer to shore or farther out, et cetera, depending on temperature. But again, uh, going back to the fact that we're going to look at temperature of the data, um, I estimate that, so if you took all the telemetered seismometers in the United States, and which there's thousands of them, there's a lot, I mean, the United States is a big country, and it's you know, modern, has a lot of seismometers. We took about 50 times more data in that week than the entire network of the united states took that week so it's just in a tremendous amount of data and you know i'm kind of old-fashioned and i want to have my eyeballs on every you know all the data i've taken but it's you know it's pretty much you know getting to the point where it's impossible and this is why we're only doing one week of data at a time if we took 52 weeks of that we'd have petabytes worth of data sure. and this is not a and this is not a you know in terms of seismology maybe other you know. Other areas of physics take that kind of data, but certainly seismology is not used to it, and I'm not used to it. So we're going to be looking to bring in some machine learning type uh, unsupervised learning and say, well, we can't look at all this. So we're going to say, you know, here, let's put, a, let's put it into a machine learning you know, algorithm and, you know, it can try to find events for us. And then we could, you know, zoom in on those areas that seem interesting.
1: Now, apart from ice quakes and earthquakes, do you ever like hear living things or, or, or shipping or, or other things in the data?
2: So it turns out there's a ordinarily an ice road that is supposed to be up there this time of year or that time of year in February, but be, do some contract, um, not dispute, but contract delay. They hadn't, they hadn't uh, constructed it yet. So when we were out there, we noticed there was a hovercraft. And say, like, what's that? You know? And so, you know, we made a note of the time, et cetera. And in fact, yeah, we, we do see this hovercraft that goes out and kind of um, services Offshore oil rigs or offshore oil facilities, and it's a it's a pretty big noise, really. I mean, you, if you think about it, you know, we're you know the fan blades of the hovercraft. It's not really touching the ice. That's coupled to air, and that's coupled to ice. The ice is coupled to the water. The water coupled to the ground, and the one in the ground is coupled to our fiber. And it it kind of lights up like gangbusters. We can see it pretty well, and it it's almost it in it and a really long frequency. So it's almost like it's a you're beating a drum. You know, you have this large plate of ice in this 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 uh this hovercraft is kind of like beating it, you know, and it's kind of got like rumble that you could see for, you know, kilometers away. And we haven't seen any biogenic sources yet, like whales or seals. I did, you know, in the, in the small amount of data, I physically looked at, there was this really strange repeating event that was in the ice. You could tell it was in the ice, but it, it had a, you know, it's an ice quake that repeated every five seconds in the same exact spot. And that's, you know, that, to me, that seemed odd. and. I'm wondering, I, you know, I have no, you know, I have no evidence of this. I'm wondering because bowhead whales will break through the ice so that they could breathe. So I can, you know, in, in my mind's eye, I'm looking at, it, I'm thinking about this, you know, whale trying to break through the ice one, two, you know, three, four times. And then finally breaking through and then it just stopped, but we haven't seen any vocalizations yet. Um, wh- you know, some of the times a year that we'll be up, there will be, we'll be, we'll have a better chance of doing that
1: you know what do you hope to learn over the the lifetime of the project thanks to this you know new tool this new hammer that you've got
2: well like i said the the, the major goal right now is for climate type uh, information so you know if we have uh, better ideas of how you know intensity and distribution of arctic storms uh, if that increases or decreases because we can look at the ambient just the overall noise level ambient noise level of a storm and kind of determine how severe it is and we're trying to you know in 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 the future, data collect have buoys on the ice, you know, in, in collaboration with the with a university, so that we know we can have and buoys on the ice in the ocean, so we have a direct transfer function between what the strain rate at the seafloor and the wave height is from these buoys, either ice or water. So if we have that relationship and it's robust, then we've essentially put out twenty thousand buoys in the ocean as well, right? Mm-hmm. So that that'll certainly help um, understand ocean circulation, wave height. You know, and like I said, the, the nice thing about the, the DAS fiber is it's going to be there forever, you know, in, in real terms, at least I'll be retired before it's gone. <laughs> and so we can go every year and say, OK, well, wave height is increasing every year. And that has um, or if maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But let's say it is that has a big effect on coastal erosion, which is a, is a problem on the North Slope. So the higher the wave height, the more energy is, you know, impinging on the shore, and you know, then we can do better prognostications of, you know, how long these coastal cities like Ukiavik, you know, do they have to move back or you know, things like that. So that's one things like that are the are the, the main goal of the project.
1: Well, Rob Abbott, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure to speak with you.
2: No, it's great. Thank you for
0: your interest. That was Rob Abbott in conversation with Margaret Harris. The west coast of Ireland is famous for its rugged coastline, which is often pounded by huge waves coming in off the Atlantic Ocean. These waves are so powerful that they can shift giant boulders, and they pose a real danger to anyone foolish enough to get close enough to the sea. But the waves have also inspired a musician and a geoscientist to collaborate, as Physics World's James Dacey discovers.
3: clip there from a song called Calm Waves, which comes from a new collaboration between the musician Cormac Byrne and the geoscientist Rona Cox. So I'm joined now on the podcast by both of them. So thanks guys for taking the time out to come and chat about the project.
4: Hi James, lovely to be thanks here. Thanks for having
5: us. Yeah, it's great to be here.
4: Of all the podcasts, not- I thought I would never appear on uh, Physics World <laughs> was up there, <laughs> but it's, it's lovely to, <laughs> lovely to join you.
3: Here you go. Nice, nice debut. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, maybe start by saying a bit about that song and perhaps how this whole um, collaboration came about.
4: Yeah. So, I mean, my involvement, maybe I'll let Rona pick this up, but my involvement, at- Rona invited me along to, um, yeah, to kind of uh, to, to be the composer and musician uh, on this project. Our co-composer, I should say, because we are actually working with another musician and composer as well um the wonderful Ronan O'Snodig from the band Keela. So um yeah so Rona in fact I was the la- I was the second uh composer to be invited into this. And uh, the real idea was to convey the the science of energetic coastlines and uh waves and sneaker waves and how they interact with boulder beaches and to somehow uh turn that into music and com- uh, communicate the message of that. Uh, of the energetic coastlines with, you know, the the beauty and the dangers of these coastlines to the public. So that was the the general idea.
5: Yeah, so this is the uh, the overarching project of which this is a component is a National Science Foundation-funded three-year research project to look at boulder beaches uh, in a variety of different settings and to try and characterize those geomorphologically and uh, sedimentologically um, but an important component of understanding how uh, energetic coastlines evolve is the waves that, that move the boulders, that do the erosion, that reconfigure the coastline in various ways. And uh, and as people spend more time outdoors, as, as people are drawn to extreme environments in the Instagram era, uh, where people, you know, share... I, uh, information about places where storms are happening, big waves are happening, people go there. Um, and there's a lack of understanding of the dynamics of the waves at coastlines, in particular, uh, the rapidity and suddenness with which extremely large waves, whether they're rogue waves, that is, rogue uh, waves that are um, twice the background significant wave height, uh, or whether they are sneaker waves waves that have an unexpectedly long run up on a on a shallow slope um and people are increasingly being surprised by these things and swept away and in some cases injured badly or even killed and so as a component as a part of the what national science foundation calls the broader impact of the research uh, i thought it would be nice to do a music project that you, that uses rhythm uses percussion Uh, to express the physics of waves, to try and create a sense of both uh, periodicity, regularity, uh, and also chaos, disorder, and suddenness. And uh, so that's why I reached out to uh, Ronan initially, and then also to Cormac, uh, so that we could try and develop this.
3: Because I know, um, Rona, your uh, research has involved looking at Giant waves um, on the off the west coast of Ireland, on the on the Aran Islands, and I know in, in the news a few years ago there were some yeah you know, amazing uh, stats about the size of these huge boulders that were moved. I mean, can, can you give us a sense of the the scale and the and the amount of energy involved in these processes?
5: Yeah, so these you know these are extraordinary processes, and one of the um, exciting things about this work is that until recently, some of the sites that I look at. Uh, the boulders there, which can be the size of a small house, you know, um, the size of seven or the mass of seven or eight blue whales, you know, these kinds of, mm. of sizes, individual boulders that are 10, 12 meters long and can be eight meters thick uh, and in some and weigh hundreds of tons. Um, so in the past, it had been thought that these were far too heavy to be moved by storm waves and that they must be relic tsunami deposits. Uh, but students and I have been looking at these things for about a decade. And then we got really lucky in that very stormy winter, the winter of 2013, 2014, uh, which all up and down the eastern side of the Atlantic uh, was stormy, very stormy, very dramatic storms. So we went out the following year and re-imaged places that we've been working for years and were able to show um, that very large rocks had moved and into the largest boulder that we documented as having moved was 620 tons. And that's by far the largest boulder ever to have been um, unequivocally shown to have been moved by storm waves. So we're now at the point of turning those numbers, those masses, those observations, into information about the the power of the waves that moved them. So, you know, we're at the phase now of being able to document and and numerically characterize um the characteristics of storm waves at coasts in places where you can't really measure them when these events are going on because you know people can't survive their instruments can't survive in those environments. So so having these boulders be like pinning points for where particular energies were exerted is really useful. And we're showing that water velocity, so the waves come in and they either overtop or they break, but either way they generate horizontal bores onshore, that can extend inland for hundreds of meters in some cases, um, that can overtop cliffs up to 25, 26 meters high and form horizontal bores that then move inland for tens of meters. We're now showing, using these boulders, um, by analyzing the hydrodynamics and the physics involved, that the velocities in some cases are like 10 meters per second at low elevations. And we've documented four to six meter per second flows on the tops of tall cliffs. So this is really exciting information. It's really new information. Um, and the science is just cutting edge and,
3: and thrilling. Cormac, yeah, I mean, this this science, is, it's incredible in terms of its scale. And there's also an element of mystery there. There's lots of unanswered questions. How do you take that and, and turn it into a piece of art, some music? What, what's your process
4: indeed yeah that is the big question (laughs) and uh you know i I love when i love listening to rona speak uh you know about the science in that way and i just find it really inspiring and and you know really inspiring as an artist to really figure out how how i can do that how i can create music from this from this data in one aspect and then from the you know like i'm not I, i think artistically i'm not simply looking at Trying to map the data onto onto music uh, you know create music from the data it's a It's a real artistic process, so you know we wanted to capture the sort of feeling i suppose the visceral feeling of what it's like to experience these coasts um, so how do I do that yeah um, the, the, you know I think first thing we're at a fairly early stage in the process, uh, so we're trying out lots of different ideas. Um, Primarily, we're based in drumming traditions, and particularly the tradition of uh, the Irish traditional drum, which is called the Bowron and it's a, it's a single-skinned frame drum. Now, this drum is, is remarkably powerful and remarkably expressive, so we can really tap into this drum to, to create the, the rhythms of the waves in various different ways. What I'm trying to do is layer many different aspects. I'm combining it sort of with a bit of minimalist composition techniques as well, um, which is quite repetitive. So tapping into the the regular patterns, I suppose, as well as the irregularity, Um, and then combining that with synthesis and uh, so getting the synthesizers involved, which is a fairly new area for me and it's fascinating to explore through this project in a way, because with synthesis, we can actually, well, we can physically look at the waveforms and uh, the sound waveforms, and then it's a question of okay, so what what do the water waves have in common with the sound waves, and can we take any of that into the music, and what does that sound like, and how can we manipulate that? Now, we now uh, we're not really interested in mapping the waveforms exactly onto waveforms; it's more of a creative process, but. It's definitely interesting to work in, inside these sort of constraints to create music that's um, it's, that's not mathematical, and it's not scientific music, that it's kind of emotional, emotionally felt music, and uh, it maybe has a visceral impact on people that listen to it. And we're hoping that the music might carry the message as well of the, you know, the, the beauty and also the danger, so the safety aspect of these coastlines. Uh, and if people that may not be able to identify with the numbers or with the science, maybe they can identify with the music, and the message will be uh, transmitted in that way. So that is the idea. Uh we're <laughs> we're open to lots of ideas at the moment. I mean, uh, both myself and Ronan, the other percussionist, we both specialize in the in the Baron, the Irish drum but we also both play lots of different percussion instruments from around the world my training is as a classical percussionist actually so um i'm planning on bringing a lot of the tune percussion side in set to have a melodic element and uh and also ha- a harmonic element and as you heard in the opening track i suppose um th- that was piano so you know i i played uh i played piano for that track because what i wanted to do was in that particular instance, was really convey the the sea in a calm state, and that was the idea. There's the so it's mainly based on piano, which of course mm-hmm. technically is a percussion instrument. Of course, as the the mallets do strike the the <laughs> strings, so it's class in the percussion world. Um, but yeah, like the idea of that track was to be this sort of um. It's, it's actually based on, on Fleetwood Mac's Albatross track. Well, it's not based, it was Uh, inspired by that track. So, so I I tried (laughs) to, I tried to, I was very inspired. I remember, I remember very distinctly listening to that track for the first time and just being able to see what I was hearing. And I just wanted to tap into that sort of, uh, feeling, I suppose. And the, I,
3: I thought it sounded a bit like, um you know, Radiohead's Pyramid Song. I don't know if oh, you're Oh, fantastic! You're well, with that. I mean, see, any Radiohead comparison, I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> Almost the same. Like, hopefully, there'll be no lawsuits. But
0: <laughs> yeah, do you know what? Like,
4: it. I, 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 um, yeah, even with <laughs> Albatross, and I hadn't heard it for, for probably a few years. You know. And then after I composed that track, I went back and heard it. I thought, "Wow, it says nothing like Albatross. at all." <laughs> <laughs> and so, so my memory of it was very different from the reality of it, I suppose.
3: I, I suppose for both of you, I mean, how does, you're saying the music is not going to be a literal, um, sort of description of the, of the science. It's more informed by it. And then it, I guess you'll go on this journey of creating something. So h- how will the collaboration aspects of that work, do you think?
5: So one of the um so, so right right now you know I had I had the idea Cormac and Ronan are now doing the bulk of the work because this is their field of expertise and they're you know approaching it with all of this dynamic energy and this this marvelous creative feel um and uh, I'm sort of you know we're talking about what this means and and how it relates to the science in various ways ideally we'd all go out in the field together and sort of stand at the coast and watch waves and, you know, think about the science and, and discuss that and feel it. And I think that that would be a marvelous thing for pushing it, uh, you know, just helping unify and also move it forward. We haven't been able to do that yet for obvious reasons. Um, but then once the once the music is in a form that we are all happy with, uh, for me, the next stage is bundling that with information. So uh, one of the things that I see as a a big goal of this project is that the music will be available to other people. We will do some work. Cormac has already begun doing lovely work, merging the music with video. Um, And so that is one way that we can disseminate the music and also try and create in people's heads the ideas that we are bringing to the music. Um, But Helping it also making it available in an educational format. So I have sort of a vision of um, of uh, sheets rhythm with 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 rhythm patterns laid out on them, a simplified version of the complex work that Ronan and Cormac are doing on their drums. Uh, but that the kids in classes could layer, like you know, either you know tapping on the desk uh, or um, or in garage band, you know, depending on the level of the kids and what's going on. Um, So they would be able to see the interference patterns. They'd be able to see how rhythms uh, relate to each other um, and manipulate it. And there would be science content with that, that I would create, you know, know, PowerPoint slides, scientific background, uh, specific information that melded the music with the science, both in terms of the overall physics of waves, you know, and how the character, the differences and the similarities between water and sound waves. And then also the geoscience relating it to coastal erosion, relating it to coastal safety. And so uh, so that's, uh, you know, where this will, it's almost like a waveform itself. It's my ideas, <laughs> then the music work, and then there's some science. So it's evolving in that kind of way. That's what I see.
3: And, and do you think you would like to engage perhaps the, the communities that live in these coastal areas? Is there a way you can involve those people? And also, you know, potentially once things open up again, maybe go and perform in I don't know, some, somewhere like the Aran Islands where, you know, these people have perhaps some more day-to-day closeness with, with the well,
5: sea. So Cormac and I, so I, you know, I'm an amateur Boweron player and I met Cormac on the, uh, on Innish year uh, in the Aran Islands originally mm-hmm. because every year there, there is a Bowron workshop that brings about a hundred people from all around the world whose unifying characteristic is they love the drum And uh, and it's it lasts for a week. And I found out about it initially because I was doing field work on the islands. And so then I would fashion my summer. So I would do fieldwork and then go to Kraken (laughs) and go back. Um, So Cormac and I met in the context of the Aran Islands and the coast and the drum. And uh, we've actually already talked about doing a a presentation at the Bowron Summer School the next time that happens. And another aspect too in terms of like connecting with the the communities, as you were mentioning, um, is uh creating is working with so so there are places, and I'm thinking specifically about Salt Hill in Galway, um, where there's a big, highly touristed, highly trafficked coastal section. Uh it's also very stormy, it's a place where people do dumb things every time there's a storm. Um, but there are already displays there that link the seafront to coastal erosion processes in the context of sea level change and climate change, sea level rise and climate change. Um, and it occurred to me that uh, connecting with colleagues at NUI Galway to create installations where you could talk about the dangers of waves, rogue waves, wave run up, um, impromptu storm waves, uh, and connect that visual and uh, and um, written information with a little sound installation that might use the music from the project. So that would be another way of of leveraging it in a community. Um,
3: that, that sounds great. And, and is it, I suppose, within the context of climate change? Um, I mean, we hear sea levels are rising, but will there also be a, a higher frequency of waves? And will, do you think um, these giant rogue waves you spoke about, are they likely to become even bigger? Uh,
5: That's, you know, that's a $6 million question. Uh, It's a fantastic one. People are doing a lot of studies at the moment of uh, wave spectra, um, mostly in the open ocean, uh, to try and determine how the sea states, that is the sort of the uh, overall range of wave sizes, the distribution of sizes, uh, will evolve over time in different storms. Um, There is a sense. So, And then there's globally and then there's locally. And locally for us is the North Atlantic. Um, And the North, although globally, uh, storminess is likely to increase as there's more heat in the, you know, the atmosphere ocean system. It's going to be more energetic. You expect more rainfall. You expect more wind. You expect more storms. Uh, In the Atlantic Basin itself, storminess is predicted to decrease. Rather than increase, and in part that has to do with, um, you know, persistent El Nino states that are likely to arise over the Pacific, which uh, messes with the air circulation at aloft a in the Atlantic basin and cuts the top off thunderstorms. So you can't really generate huge hurricanes as easily. Um, but within that, there is also evidence that the largest wave sizes might be on the increase. The data are really noisy. Most of them are collected from satellite. Um, so uh, the resolution is coarse and the time series is very short because we've only been able to do this really for you know a couple of decades and, and less than that for wave, ob- wave observations. Um, but the indications are that individual waves might get larger. What that's going to mean at coasts is a whole nother thing. Uh, and I think more important for coasts is uh, is not so much the size of individual waves in storm packets but overall storminess um, mm-hmm. and certainly worldwide that is likely to increase and you add increased storminess to higher sea levels and then you've got bigger run-up um, and the potential for more damage
3: okay and, and Cormac, you, you mentioned earlier that you had an instrument with you there. I wondered whether, yes. you know, <laughs> we, we, have spoken about the science and the project, so it, it would be great to maybe, um, hear an example. I know in the, um, the EGU conference, you gave a demonstration of you know, how you can recreate some of the sounds of waves. Um, I don't know whether you could.
4: Yeah, I, indeed. Yeah, here. I can give that a go. So, um, so this is, uh, this is the Irish traditional drum, the bar on, and, uh, it's essentially a frame drum. Um, it's very closely, uh, resembles the, the frame drums of North Africa, if people are more familiar with those, but, um, it's, it's got a, a skin on the front, uh, which can be, uh, animal skin or synthetic. Um, it's generally goat skin is a traditional form of skin on a, on an Irish baron. And then it's got a wooden frame. And then on the inside of the skin, I can actually wrap my, my hand, uh, Around the drum and place it on the inside of the skin to manipulate the tone. So I'll just play you the uh, open open sound of the of the drum just for reference first. So I'd play a quite a traditional rhythm. So then what I can do is actually use the other hand. I'm playing with one hand, uh, and I can use the other hand to actually. Uh, this, the, so manipulate the skin to create different tones. So that's the, the traditional sort of uh, wooden stick sound. So in terms of what we can do in, in, in this project, I suppose, I'm using it as uh, as a musical instrument, but also as a sound design tool, I suppose, so I can create different textures by, uh, for example, here I'm just going to use the, the nails of the hand to... Um to create these sort of wave like textures and we can get that more dynamic I've got a I've got a, a brush this is a washing up brush so I'm gonna just use this so we can kind of layer those textures uh, within the composition and uh, you know see see what happens then there's lots of different uh, stick sticks that we can use as well so Uh, This is, uh, I'll just get this one here, this is uh, what we kind of refer to as a hot rod stick, which is a a bunch of uh, small, almost um, like barbecue skewers, if you like, Uh, but, you know, made of different woods. so this is made of maple. But yeah, it produces a very different tone. So I can kind of play rhythmically, using some dynamic movement. create some sort of ripples in the sound, you know, then I can actually manipulate the tone as well. So I'll add that element now. And then, uh, so that's quite fairly regular rhythms. I'm now going to play more irregularly. So I'll play something in five, so groups of five, so. sevens So still fairly regular so I'm going to now play uh some fours uh followed by some fives and followed by some sevens and mix all these different time signatures up to create this kind of element of irregularity so So, you know, we can start using these sort of mixtures of time signatures to create different elements in the music. And when we layer these, and sometimes, you know, maybe layering fours against fives and against sevens, so superimposing different time signatures. We're not limited to those numbers, of course, we can use any numbers really that we like. And then I'll just experiment again with a different sort of stick so we can get very spiky sound with that kind of wood and then I'm simply going to use a paintbrush now. Yeah, so... It's, it's amazing yeah, <laughs> the,
3: the amount of variety you can get just in one yeah one and the, I mean, do
4: you know what that's just what i have on my desk in front of me i've got i've got <laughs> boxes of tools <laughs> and, and, and lots of different drums as well you know this is only one particular style of drum one particular size and uh yeah we've got a studio full of these so
3: okay and um i mean just finally you know where can people follow you to, to see how this project is is developing where, where's the best place to go for that
5: um, so we're, eventually we'll make some kind of a website, but we're really not there yet. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Rona underscore Cox. Um, and Cormac is uh, more active on Instagram, I think.
4: Yeah, you can f- find me on Instagram and Facebook. It's at Cormac Byrne Percussion is my handle. And uh, the website is uh cormacburn.com.
3: Okay, well, thank you both for joining us. It's been really fascinating. And I, I can't wait to see where the project goes in the next few months and years.
4: Thanks so much for having us, and thanks for your interest. You know, and we're we're very excited to see where this goes ourselves. So maybe we'll come back with our results at one point. <laughs> yeah,
5: thanks, thanks a million, James, for inviting us. It was really fun talking to you.
0: If you'd like to find out more about Rona and Cormac's work, James has written a blog about it on the Physics World website. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Rob Abbott, Rona Cox, Cormac Byrne, Margaret Harris, and James Dacey for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Callum Jelf. We'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, please do listen to the latest Physics World Stories podcast, which explores the tantalizing possibility that Fermilab's muon g-2 experiment has found evidence of a new force. You can find stories in the podcast section of the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider.
1: Physics World